Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Berlay. Coming up over the next 60 minutes, my guests, Juliet Lindley and Ben Ozog. It's a bit of a, almost like it's a family reunion, it feels like. Everyone is back around the microphone. Autumn is here. Juliet, good morning. Good morning. What do you have for us today? Well, of course, we're going to go to Italy. And of course, I'm going to tell you uh, where the Pope stands regarding the new ultra-conservative Giorgia Meloni. And it's probably not what you think. And I'm also going to go to Tinos, which is an island more known for its holiness than for its hurricanes. But there's seriously high winds there. Very good. Also, we'll have an update on the major political race in Brazil. I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and I'll bring you the latest from the Brazilian election. Very good. Oh, goodness. I think they get a long flight. I believe he's back in London. Plus, we'll hear what's making headlines in the Danish newspaper, Jyllands Posten. It's the 2nd of October 2022, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Live from Zurich, this is Monocle on Sunday with Tyler Brunet. Good morning. If you uh, just uh, maybe caught uh, the news bulletin a little bit earlier, it's a bit of a soggy, uh, a lot of damp leaves blowing around. Uh, the streets uh, are looking sort of rather wet, but I believe it looks like the sun is coming out. Ben Azog is with us this morning, also Juliet Lindley, and we're heading to London in a moment. Andrew Tuck is also with us. Uh, Benno, good morning. Very nice to see you. Good morning, Tyler. Good to see you. Uh, now, listen, I know I was, I, was, I was teasing a little bit earlier. Juliet, I wanted to let you in on this. So when, when Benno comes and does this program, he's got sort of good hair this morning. But when he does, when he does blick it, obviously, when he's, he's doing his other gigs, he's got, rather, he's got extraordinary hair. Yeah, a bit skew-whiff, looking very trendy. A bit of facial hair going yeah, on. Yeah, it's good. It's good. Benno, we love you. I, I don't know, Benno, if, if there's a TV appearance after this this morning as well. <laughs> there is a no, that hair is all for you. And thank God we're on radio so people can't see all of that. Very good. Uh, Juliet, uh, you were, we said we're going to go to the Vatican. We're going to be going to Greece uh, a little bit uh, later uh, as well. How did, we had a, a, a Hebs market, we had an autumn market here yesterday. How did you enjoy that? Yeah, I thought you were going to say a hair market. No, we're no. not talking about my hair. We're talking about the hair market. It was a bit soggy, but so fabulously toasty indoors. Yeah, I mean, it, yeah. everyone said it felt like a Christmas market, even though it was only the first day of, uh, of October. It did a bit, but yeah. we had little autumn colors outside, and I got a little bit of shock. Being in you there. did, which was good. In the men's way. In the, yeah, the men's section. department. Uh, also, Andrew Tuck is uh, with us uh, in London this morning. Andrew, good morning. Uh, good morning, Tyler. And good to be back on the show. I know, right? I, I said it's like we. It's not like we haven't been working, and, and we were actually sort of quite busy. But there was a sort of, sort of, I don't know. Somehow September travel sort of kicked in again, uh, and then of course, thanks to Emma and Georgina and, and many many others standing in, uh, we were able to of course keep this uh, program on the air. But as I said, anyway, it's, it's it is a bit of a reunion today. Great to have everyone back. And what's making headlines in London this morning? Uh, well, you can guess uh, two or three things, but the key thing is is Liz Truss, the the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, who many accuse of uh, driving the UK economy off a cliff this week, will be heading to Birmingham, where the Tory party annual conference is, is going to be taking place. And it will be interesting to see her reception there. But I think it's really beyond the halls that we're waiting to see what, what happens over the following week. It's been just a chaotic, disastrous week for Brand UK. And uh, maybe you haven't had time to wait and, and, and look at, of course, the, the columns and what the papers are saying uh, this morning. Uh, but obviously, there's there's one side, which, of course, has been the markets, uh, Andrew, and, and what that has meant. But uh, also, we've seen, uh, of course, if, there, if we went to an election uh, today, what that would also mean uh, in terms of a Labour government. Of course, lots of questions around Keir Starmer um, as, as well. But uh, from the editor-in-chief's point of view, and we'll come back to your trip to Middle uh, Europa in a moment, um, but uh, just landing back in London, how does, how does it feel? 
Do you know what, people are nervous. You know, every, everybody who has a mortgage, who had money in a pension, who uh, is, is wary about the cost of living, every, I think everybody was a bit twitched this week. You know, even yesterday, I, I went to do a couple of chores around town, and like random shopkeepers started up conversations about what I'd thought had happened in the week. People are just nervous about it. The interesting thing for her, though, is that she goes to a Tory party conference, which is, is so the people turning up, for example, Boris Johnson's not going, Sunak's not going, they're leaving the coast clear for her. And the people who turn up in that hall are diehard Trust fans. So she's, she's going to get a, a good hearing anyway. And you also get a hint at who her backers are in the Tory party this morning in, in a small piece in The Telegraph, which says they polled Tory voters and Tory voters said they'd prefer for interest rates on savings to go up. Um, rather than uh, have low rates on mortgages. And that's because many of the people in the hall long ago paid off their mortgages. So in a way, she's a bit, she's going to be uh, not quite exposed to the anger of the, of the public when she's in that hall. It's going to feel a little bit jolly. So she may be mistakenly buoyed, I think, by what happens in Birmingham. But as soon as she leaves that conference hall, it, it's, she, she has not only spooked the markets, she's, she's spooked most of the UK this week. Andrew, of course, this will uh, keep uh, not just Monocle.com uh, uh, and certainly M24 busy throughout the week, but obviously uh, all news outlets in the UK. I want to rewind uh, to uh, the, the, the start of this week. You were in Prague. Uh, tell us why you were there. Uh, I went to something called the Summit of the Cities, which um, happened over two days. Um, it was hosted by the mayor of um, Prague, Zdeněk uh, Hizib, and he brought together all the mayors from the east, mostly from the east of the country, but also from deputy mayors from Helsinki, from uh, Barcelona. And the idea was that in the mornings they'd have these private sessions where they would discuss key issues facing them, so uh, what, how to continue to show solidarity and help Ukraine through something called the Pact of the Free Cities, and also the, how they can respond to the, 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 the crisis around fuel. But then in the afternoon, they had public sessions, which um, Monocle was invited to host many of those. And then members of the public and press came in, and there was a, a chance to debate some of the bigger issues. And um, Vitaly Klitschko came and joined me on stage. You know, he'd come from Kyiv. Uh, but it was just interesting hearing all of the, the, the mayors. And as we know, Tyler, you, you, depending where you just physically sit in the world or stand, what you hear is very, very different. So it, 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 I, was, I was super impressed by all these mayors because they're, they're, they're nimble, they're doing great things. And, and you, you think of a country like Albania as maybe being a little bit poor and, and maybe more challenged and having its own issues. But then you meet Arion Veliai, who's the, the mayor of Tirana, passionate, you know, a monocle reader, super engaged with the world. In fact, he said to me, he said, no, I think Monocle should be involved in this discussion about rebuilding Ukraine because you know more architects and designers anywhere in the world. You could be a forum for discussing how you re rebuild the country. So it was super fascinating. But yes, everybody was talking about turning down the dial to make sure that they, uh, they conserve energy and really pushing ahead with, with helping Ukraine. And the news this morning from uh, Lyman, the fall of the city uh, in, in, in the east of Ukraine, just shows that, that they have some momentum behind them, I think, as well. Uh, Andrew, I just want to bring in uh, Benno on that. Uh, so, Benno, on one side, of course, we saw extraordinary announcements around annexation uh, on, on Friday. A lot of people trying to scratch their head around this when, of course, we see that territory is being lost. Um, Andrew was, was, of course, in Prague. I was at a dinner in Berlin on Monday evening, and I sat beside a former U.S. Army general, and, and he was, yeah, 
he's obviously an advisor today. He's very involved in the Ukraine. And he was talking about what he thought the next year would look like. And, and his view was that uh, that he thinks that Ukraine will certainly push back into Crimea. He said if, if sanctions hold, he said, of course, if weapons supply, uh, weapon supplies hold as well, he was feeling rather bullish about where things could go. So could you sort of maybe set up for us and put in perspective what we saw on Friday. And then on, on, the, on the same, by the same token, I'd like to sort of, you know, bring Andrew in on this, on this topic of, of rebuilding and, and where things start to move. Mm. What we saw from Moscow was probably a bizarre exercise of some kind of parallel world, parallel reality, where in a pseudo legal act based on a pseudo democratic act, um, Russia annexes regions that it currently doesn't even control. And is losing ground further by the day. And we saw it with the, with the Ukrainian conquest of Liman um, just the other day. So it is very bizarre to wrap one's head around these parallel words where things are happening. And the, the optimism of this American general is indicative, I think, of the current trend we do see and the trend we see in the ex expert community as well, that indeed Ukraine is doing well, it is pushing back, it's keeping the Russians on the move. And even though this partial mobilization is already fully... Um, fully running, it doesn't mean that the Russian ranks can be closed anytime soon or Russia can even push back. But there were some ifs involved. Obviously, if sanctions hold, um, if Western weapons supply keeps flowing to Ukraine, if it can exploit these kind of uh, success stories during their offensives, and also obviously very heavy ifs. But I would argue both the move that is the annexation and the partial mobilization in Russia, needless to say, it's not popular um, and it's not going well, were indications, of course, that Russia feels the pressure. Putin feels the pressure. They are losing, um, not just diplomatically, of course, um, they're losing economically and they're losing on the battlefield. Hence, these accelerated moves that were very unpopular that he would not have considered a few months ago. And that, in a way, should give us hope to some extent. But it also makes us realize what the other measures can be that Putin can take if he's feeling increasingly under pressure and cornered, which is, of course, that he will possibly increase attacks against civilian targets in Ukraine. And um, we're talking cities, we're talking critical infrastructure, we're talking electricity supply, hydropower dams and so on. Um, I think that's certainly in the cards. And obviously, there's always talk of a potential use of nuclear weapon at some point if things were even more dire for Russia and let's say Crimea itself is under pressure. So it's kind of this very mixed message that we get. There's there's reasons to be hopeful. Well, there's also reasons that Putin is still erratic. He's still there. He still has the power. Domestic challenges haven't really risen just yet. Um, so this leaves us for, for a tough next half year or so. Mm. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll look at other stories uh, making news in a moment. But Andrew, just if we go back to the spirit of the conference and, and certainly this, this notion of how do you rebuild villages, towns, cities uh, in, in the Ukraine, I guess there's, is there a symbolic component to all of this to almost get things underway? You know, on one side, of course, uh, you know, we don't know where things are going to go, but uh, already we were seeing places, you know, being dusted down. We've seen great excavation, etc. What was the feeling in terms of almost, you know, something that resembles a bit of a master plan in terms of what needs to be, be done? Was that part of the momentum in Prague? Well, they made it clear that those those discussions are happening. What happens in, in a post-war Ukraine and, and in the key cities to rebuild them? I think that they were more concerned with very immediate issues. So um, Mayor Klitschko said to the, the, the collected mayors who are there, he said, look, the, the thing we really need immediately is oddly uh, plastic sheeting and glass because we have so many windows blown out in these towns and cities. 
that just to make them uh, winterproof. That is the key thing. So what was amazing from you know, Francisca Giffey, who was there as the, you know, the mayor of Berlin, I was talking to her and she said, Look, you know, I'm going to go back to Berlin. You know, we have so many projects that are completing where at the end of it you have building materials. I'm going to pull together a, a d discussion just to see how we can practically st send stuff to help seal windows. And actually, Klitschko was saying, look, just plastic. That We just need plastic to cover windows. That's, what, that's the starting point. But again, it, it, what was fascinating, Tyler, was you know, that you know, here, it, I think the further you get away from, the, from, from, from uh, Eastern Europe, the story gets a little bit kind of broken up these days. But when you're in Prague and you realize you know, that Russian troops came into the Czech Republic uh, back in 68 during the, the, the Prague uprising, even now for a young generation of people, it's very pertinent. People really feel that they have to stand up to things. And also, it's, it, it's interesting how they really feel that they're, that they're, they're holding the, you know, the, the flame of European values in a way, more than I think some people maybe in, in London would ever imagine they were doing. It was, it, was, it was passionate, it was interesting, but super, super practical. So in Prague, um, uh, Mayor Shib said to me, look, I've given um, ambulances, we, we found some trams that we're going to be replacing, so we sent them to, already sent them to Ukraine, we've sent buses that were uh, uh, coming out of our fleet. So both practical and I think symbolic standing with, with Ukraine is still very strong. Juliet, I want to, uh, to bring you in, a uh, little bit of a, of a shift change, uh, but uh, we'll stay on a, certainly on a political footing. This is uh, now Italy one week on. Uh, now, you teased us a little bit earlier with what the feeling and the mood would be in, in the Vatican. But just reflections anyways. You've been reading the Italian press over the last week and sort of the international press. And uh, what, are, what are the reactions now? And, and of course, dust is, is still very settling. And this is very fresh um, with, uh, with uh, Signor Meloni coming into power. Well, dust is settling. We still don't even know um, how soon she's going to be able to nominate her cabinet, um, what Mattarella's take is going to be on it. But certainly, um, I'm just a bit tired of hearing the whole fascist element being brought into it, because um, that's where the, that's I think the crux of the matter is. It's not so much about that as you know, like posing a threat to democracy or God forbid, you know, Mussolini's racial laws being reintroduced. But for me, it's the danger lies in whether she's stuck in a um, last, it's sort of like she's so uh, conservative on very 21st century issues. Mm. So fascism was last century. Here we are, like she's so anti-abortion, anti-gay rights, um, this whole thing of like what constitutes a family and race and religion and immigration. So to me, that is the biggest um, flashing alert red light going on there with her and you know i've got their spiegel in front of me and it's got their meloni shock how uh dangerous is italy's post-fascist leader and uh and they and they go and interview three different characters and three different parts of italy and one is a tobacconist one is an auschwitz survivor one is an author and it paints a really really dire picture mm. uh, but Mood. I mean, obviously, this is, uh, you know, we have to sort of reflect on, there were serious numbers that obviously supported her. Um, I would imagine not not uh, everyone, of course, is endorsing uh, ev every part of her platform policy, but certainly a good constituency of the people have, yeah. have spoken. Um, so when you're talking to friends... Uh, Let's see what she can do. Is it let's, let's see what you can let, do? Let's see, let's see. I mean, like, what are you going to do? She's there. Five million uh, fewer people turned up at the ballot yes. box compared. That's huge, right? So there's there's like a lot of just 
simply just apathy, like nothing's going to change anyway. You've got the cynic saying, yeah, let's see what she can do. How long is this government going to last? If governments don't famously last very long in Italy in any case, what about this, which is such a pulling together mm. of so many different positions anyway? Ben, what's your read on it? Because we haven't, we haven't touched on this. And, and of course, having a leader like this who also, uh, well, we don't even know how hawkish she, she's going to be, what it's going to mean uh, for, for foreign policy, she's certainly on one side, of course, uh, and, and again, part of the platform is you know, how she views North Africa and, and migration issues. But in terms of what does it mean for her relationship with the broader med, the EU, uh, how do you read it? That's obviously what people worry about. And it's indicative that she hasn't been in government before. She's been in politics for a long time, but not in government, whereas everyone else has. So we have an idea of their standing. And in her case, we still need to figure it out. Um, people worry, and I see experts or commentators go in both kinds of directions. One, um, one group may be emphasizing this post-fascist um, element of it, and hence worrying. And others saying that she's actually not that controversial about the EU, as opposed to the Cinque Stelle or other uh, political actors that have been around before, as in she will probably maintain Italy's role in the EU. That means for financial markets, um, for euro bonds and all the likes, it's probably okay, but she obviously has to prove herself. And it goes to show that it's one thing to have a political campaign and have two or three slogans emphasizing some certain core elements of the program. Once you're in power, there's dozens and hundreds and thousands of government policies that you need to decide on for which you need a proper team. Hence, the actual cabinet will be quite key, not just the party coalition. And that's all still out there. In current times, of course, it leads to certain insecurity because everyone is kind of anxious about all kinds mm. of things so this even the waiting time until all these government programs are figured out is quite quite critical because everyone is anxious these days Andrew, what was the chatter and, and the murmurs in, in Prague? Because, of course, we've come off the back of the, the Swedish elections. Then, of course, uh, the, the Italian results were reasonably fresh as well. And, and you know better than anyone else that there's oftentimes, of course, the, the discussion and politics at a metropolitan level, which is very different what is happening at a federal or, or a national level. Um, and you know, were these areas of, of concern or certainly highlighted uh, when we look at, at Stockholm and Rome, even, of course, you were uh, not quite in the extreme east of Europe, uh, but may maybe maybe those uh, results seemed rather far away. Uh, it was it was referenced um, repeatedly what had happened in Italy that I think many of the, these mayors are very centrist. They, they founded uh, this pact of free cities, which was founded by the likes of uh, Warsaw and Budapest and Prague in the beginning, because they felt that their city governments slightly were more open liberal than the national governments that they were surrounded about, by. So the, the mayor of uh, Warsaw, for example, um, Rafael Traskowski, he's, he's, uh, he, he's a challenger against those in authority. And the relationship between city and state seems to be pretty bad. On all levels, so they were there. They were they were concerned about um, the likes of you know, an Italian version of Victor Orban coming to power, and also some mayors hadn't turned up. So, for example, so, uh, the delegation from Stockholm wasn't there because they've resigned following the election, and you know, they, they they can't because they, the foot she's from the moderate party. She didn't want to be drawn into the into the hullabaloo about this 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 uh, new government. So, definitely an, an an issue, and definitely something that people were talking about. And in fact. On on the second day, Franz Timmermans came as well, and although these sessions were private, there were—I can say that there was a, a, again a discussion about what this means for for, for Europe and and the, the the need to be a little bit more cohesive around policies and make sure that people don't get left behind if you don't want to have um, uh, difficult politics, as it were.
Mm. Uh, Juliet, uh, let's uh, maybe just go to the Vatican as well, just to we'll wrap up on the topic of Maloney. But uh, but certainly, what's uh, what's the Holy See uh, saying, uh, and uh, yeah, how expressive are they being? Well, no, you're not gonna. You're, you wouldn't expect in any case the pontiff to to come out outright with his opinions on an Italian election outcome. But um, I've got an interesting twist here on the Pope's presumed position on Giorgia Meloni, and it's kind of staying on topic with Ukraine and Russia because you'd think that if she's pro-life and she's anti-gay rights and she's pro-husband and wife, Christian families, then Pope Francis must surely love her. I mean, after all, she she ran under the banner of God, homeland, and family. But think again. This is a very lefty pontiff, right? He's known to abhor nationalist populism. He says it's a threat to democracy and symbolizes a degradation of political life. And he's made the plight of immigrants, particularly a focal point of his pontificate, constantly calling on rich countries to embrace them, integrate them, you know, bring down the barriers. So you'd think that he and uh, future Meloni government would be on a collision course, therefore. But however, this great article that I found in Crux Online outlines how actually there's one issue where in the here and now, uh, the two could possibly be aligned, and that's Russia, and how to deal with it. So until now, you had Mario Draghi, the former prime minister, very much full throttle pro-Ukraine, anti-Kremlin, anti-any sort of uh, making any concessions. And Pope Francis, on the other hand, he's been tiptoeing around, uh, putting Vladimir Putin directly in the firing line, trying to maintain um, ties with the Orthodox Church, and he's always calling for dialogue. So. The pontiff is more about our oh, peace at all costs, ending war no matter what, even if the solution might be a disagreeable one, and even if it means negotiating with Moscow. So the paradox is perhaps that unlike social liberal forces that are uh, opposed to sitting down and talking peace with Putin, the social conservative position upheld by Francis is that you've got to do what you've got to do. So even if the Pope stands diametrically opposed, opposed to Meloni on immigration and social policies, Meloni and Francis may surprisingly turn out to be, um, yeah, you know, say, they say politics makes for strange bedfellows. Well, there you go. And I know you love that analogy when it comes to the... Always. And I, I was going to ask, because, because you were doing the Vatican budget, is there... I mean, it's a different situation. We're talking about, uh, of course, two states here. But is there a moment as well, just given proximity, that, uh, of course, the new leader has to go and visit the Pope? Uh, is there some type of ceremony around this? Uh, yeah. There is. Don't ask me when, because we still don't know. We don't know. She's exactly. going to come into power. Um, Andrew, we're going to go to Greece now. You didn't go to Greece this summer. Are you, are you, I mean, I know you've, you've got your own patch of, of, of the med uh, at, at the western side. of it. Are you missing Greece? Well, Tyler, let me let me t in, in, in on a secret. While I was there in Prague, uh, who tapped me on the shoulder? But Kostas Bakayanis, who is the the mayor, of course, of Athens, and uh, he, he his key topic he was like, so when is our, our friend in common, Mr. Brule, actually going to be coming to Athens? So uh, there was there was there was uh, there were bilateral conversations about your future travel plans on the side okay. of the summit of the cities. Okay, good. <laughs> well, we can maybe do a, we can do a bit of a return because it's it's been it's been two years since our uh, our double act. Of course, uh, <laughs> we went to also see the PM. But um, actually, so do you, Andrew, have you been to Tinos before? No, I haven't. Um, but I, I hear great things. We did a, a wonderful story about the, the, the marble school there where people go and learn to do sculpture. Indeed. And uh, Juliet's got a little story for us. Yeah, I think believe out, believe out of the New York Times this morning. But uh, <laughs> yeah, tell us. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a spot famed for pilgrimages. Um, it has many beautiful churches, marble white villages. And it's a total contrast to, you know, pumping hedonistic Mykonos right nearby. But um, a lot of the piece by Jason Harvitz focuses on what our family also experienced when we were at a wedding in Tinos uh, in July. And that's the Miltemi, this violent wind 
that literally blows car doors open and off their hinges and vegetation like gets flattened horizontal and it seasonally batters the island um Oh, it's nothing compared to the hurricanes that are ripping through Central and North America. Don't get me wrong, but it's enough to dominate the everyday holiday narrative on the island. And we actually ended up cutting short our stay as the frequency of the ferries running between the islands was so severely disrupted um, by this gusty energy of the Melkemi Mao. The article also does paint an exquisitely fetching picture of Tinos, and that, I think, is what you uh, remember well, Andrew. And so he talks about the sanctuaries and the historic monasteries, the marble museum, the sculpting school, as you said. Gorgeous cafes, quaint shops, and uh, but is it a travel piece or what, what's what's yeah, it? Very much a travel. It's a travel piece. piece. Okay, it, it's not it's not making a big deal about climate change. Winds are going to get stronger. All of these things. Well, we don't do don't buy that. there. Yeah, Melchemy is getting Melchemy is getting worse because of climate change. But yeah. But so go, but like be ready with, to be blown away. Okay, and we've got uh, the, a new issue of the uh, entrepreneurs is uh, is hitting newsstand, uh, full of ideas, opportunities, etc. And we also have a, a November issue, which is also being uh, shipped out the door uh, as as well. Uh, any, any spots or highlights? We want to focus on entrepreneurs first. It seems like that went to bed a long time ago, even though it's uh, it's only hitting newsstands now. I know it's quite hard to kind of celebrate your victories because <laughs> there's something else to do straight around the corner. So we're, we're completing a, a very nice de design-focused issue, which is uh, um, looking at, well, looking, for example, at an amazing house which is, is near you, a Carla Scarpa house, which is in Zurich, which is going to be in our expo. We are, we are looking at a solution-driven um, story about energy and who's getting it right and who's going to keep the lights on with ease uh, this winter, including an interesting story about a, a German town who some years ago went off grid and generate all the, uh, their own power so much so that they can now donate it to other people as well. With with Univision in, in Mexico, this, this new streaming service which is going to take on Netflix, there's some really good reports, so I'm, I'm quite excited to see this issue come out. Excellent, Andrew. Very good uh, to talk to you. Great to have you uh, around uh, the speakers and uh, mics this morning. And uh, we'll be catching up with you, of course, uh, across the week uh, as well. Uh, you're listening to uh, Monocle on Sunday. Ben Zog uh, is here, of course. Uh, Juliet Lindley is here. We're going to be heading to Denmark uh, in a moment as well. But as the time is approaching the bottom of the hour, it is time to head back to London. Emma Nelson is there with our news headlines. Emma. Indeed, Tyler, at least 170 people have been killed in a stampede at a football match in Indonesia in what's been described as one of the world's worst stadium disasters. It's understood police used tear gas after supporters invaded a pitch in East Java. The head of Russia's region of Chechnya, Ramzan Kadyrov, has said Moscow should consider using a low-yield nuclear weapon in Ukraine. It follows the loss of the stronghold of Liman in the east of the country. Bulgarians vote in their fourth national election in less than two years today, but there's little hope for a stable government, with prolonged political turmoil undermining the country's ambitions to join the Eurozone in 2024. And the world's annual list of the top cheese producers has been published. The food hospitality website Chef's Pencil has collected the figures which measure production per capita. And Tyler, I don't know whether I should jump out and take my newsreading hat off and start my Quizmaster's hat, but would you like to venture... To, to guess who per capita is the world's leading cheese producer. And maybe, okay, open, so to, maybe open to the whole table. Yeah, let's open, we've got uh, we have three contestants here. <laughs> uh, okay, I'm amongst them. So we're, so let's, let's okay, just set this up again. We're yeah. talking about not consumption, we're talking about production. Production per capita. So we're not talking production like volume, volume. 
Okay, we're not talking about volume. Uh, Benner definitely has this thinking hat on. Juliet's like desperately trying to, yeah, she's got her Put phone the under the on. table um, and is uh, trying to cheat. No cheat. Uh, and uh, I'm, yeah, I'm also trying to consider who this might be. You're taking be. your time so you can look it up on the internet. No, no, we're not, no, we're, no one's looking up on the internet. No, we're all, so oh, Benno is like, he's, feel, he's looking a little bit cocky at the end of the table. Okay, go for it, Benno. I like my statistic. No, it's a random thinking and the per capita maybe yeah. key. So I wonder whether it's the likes of Luxembourg or Liechtenstein. Few people, but maybe if they have one big cheese factory, that's all it takes. Okay, Juliet. Oh God, come on, mozzarella, parmigiano. You think so? Okay, you, or Vietnam or something. No, like Vietnam, that. I mean, yeah, the, 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 that great, da, you know? the great dairy nation of <laughs> Vietnam. I mean, like, yeah, yeah. What are you going for, Switzerland? No, I'm not going to go for Switzerland. France. No, I think I'm going to go maybe further afield. I'm thinking maybe like it could, could it be, be Belarus. What, <laughs> could be Belarus. I'll get him. I just do have one big state factory maybe as well. But uh, what about New Zealand? I'm wondering if it's, it could be something. Uh, listen, I'm going. I'm going to go. I'm going New Zealand. Cheated. Okay, you okay. <laughs> didn't cheat. You're saying Italy, Juliet, right? Yes. Or Vietnam. Or Vietnam. <laughs> and Benno is like doing the L, the small L countries. So it's like, I don't know. Anyway, he's going Luxembourg, Liechtenstein. Okay, how do we do? Okay, you didn't do too badly, actually. Uh, Juliet, I'm sorry, Italy is 15th. Oh, Juliet, come on. Um, fake Parmigiano out there, that's why. That's the, yeah, there's a lot of that, you especially did, made in Vietnam. You did pretty well, um, Benno, if you said Belarus. It's number six. Okay. That's <laughs> there we go. I know my Belarus. <laughs> Tyler, you're as close as we're ever going to get because New Zealand is number two. Okay, good. Uh, but okay, give us yeah, give us a hint. Give you just the first letter of this first of this nation. D. Denmark. Yes. Dominican Republic. <laughs> <laughs> is, is it is it Denmark? It's Denmark with 78 kilos per capita. It's the world's biggest cheese producer per person. Holy cow! Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. What I, cheese? What like? But well, there's a, but there's I mean I can't. Give me the name of a Danish cheese. It's like I there's an Alborg maybe I don't know. Gamla uh, Ola apparently is big, but I've okay. never tried that. Um, Danish blue cheese, um, Danbo, sure. Ezron. Yeah. I don't know. You might want to ask your next I mean, course, guest. It, I mean, also it is it is a big uh, it is yeah we, we should, thanks for the segue we we and we are we are going to be heading to Jutland obviously, uh, home of a lot of a lot of cheese production. But I, I do have to ask why well, we've got uh, Benno here. Benno, can you also name any? Belarusian uh, outstanding cheese brands because I think probably a lot of listeners are, are wondering what to put on their toast this morning. Oh, good Lord. Belarusian, Belarusian cheese, the very name. No, honestly, they're very proud of their dairy tradition. They love their milk. They export it all over, but it's not any good. Emma, are you surprised by that? If you had to have guessed as I, well, would you have gone Nordic? I would have got it completely wrong. I would have, I would have, I would have forgotten the per capita bit, and I'd have gone straight right. to France or Italy or Switzerland. Um, but, but I, I was as surprised as you, um, Benno, about the Belarusian uh, success story. Above Belarus is Cyprus, and then it goes Netherlands, Ireland, yeah, New Zealand, big, yeah, Denmark. Halloumi, I mean Halloumi production, right? So, that, okay, give us the just give us the top ten very top quickly. 10. Okay, uh, quickly tenth uh, in reverse order: Latvia, Germany, Lithuania, Estonia. Belarus, Cyprus, Netherlands, Ireland, New Zealand, and Denmark. There you go. Okay. Why the emphasis on? And where and where was Switzerland in all of this? Switzerland is number fourteen, below Poland and Austria. 
But ahead of Italy, just saying. <laughs> Good. You can, see, you can see we like a bit of competition on, on, on this uh, program. Uh, Emma, thanks very much. We'll, we'll maybe catch you at the end, end of the program. Uh, it's just gone uh, 16.35. If you're listening in Singapore, it's uh, 10.35 here on the continent in Zurich and beyond, 9.35 back in London. We're now heading over to Denmark, as we said, uh, to Jutland, uh, to Jullens Post newspaper to speak to the paper's editor-in-chief. Mark-Niel Hjertsen uh, is there for us. Good morning. Good morning. All right. Well, I, I guess you sort of heard the lead into all of this and uh, don't disappoint us, yeah. but I hope there's been some uh, some good Danish cheese, some Jutland cheese uh, on the breakfast table this morning. Oh, yeah. But also remember, we are very famous for bacon, too. So yeah, if we you can't don't leave like out the cheese, bacon, espe- can, espe- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> especially in, in, uh, in Jutland. Uh, tell us, uh, if we were uh, picking up uh, the, uh, the Ulands Post uh, this morning, uh, if it was uh, dropped on our breakfast table, uh, we were going online, um, what, are, yeah. what are the lead stories uh, today? Well, the lead story is, is, a, is a story that has been the biggest uh, headline in Denmark uh, all this week, and it's about the, um, the, the leak of, uh, of North Stream 1 and 2, um, like Monday, no, it was actually Tuesday. We woke up um, to the to the finding of a lot of gas just bubbling uh, up of, uh, from the sea just outside of um, Denmark's border, um, and it turned out that there had been been some big explosions. That it had, you know, been actually something you could measure on the Richter scale. Um, and of course, I, you already heard about that story, but in Denmark. It's it's uh, it's maybe even bigger because it happened in our backyard. Absolutely. What what did this mean for the paper um, and uh, and your mobilization of, of journalists? Uh, because obviously this is something not so easy to cover. Of course, we had uh, imagery from from coast guards. Of course, uh, now everyone knows what this bubbling up looked like uh, in the Baltic. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. but how did, how did you cover it? Well, we of course sent people um, to 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 the place where it happened, just to to have our eyewitnesses uh, on the spot, and to talk to people, um, uh, some local people who sailed uh, almost past just by this explosion, to have their um, first-hand um, story about what happened. And then, of course, um, it was a very um, big political story. Uh, the Danish government uh, going in to 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 find out what what exactly happened, and as a newspaper, you know, the I think the most important thing was not to write um, just anything that we could read in in German newspapers or everywhere else where people started guessing on what might have happened. So, yeah, I think um, yeah, the, the 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 difficult thing was to keep the balance to to tell people what happened and then. Um, not to not to tell them too much because really nobody knew, and still the big discussion is of course who did this. Uh, was this an act of uh, Russian interference uh, and and direct attack on our uh, infrastructure in Europe, or was it or wasn't it? So that's still the big discussion and the really tough story to cover. Mm. I just want to bring in our security correspondent Ben Azogas here. Ben, I mean, is it is it a big scratch or head moment uh, or not? And 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 I guess is this a question of are we really talking about a, directly a state actor or the fact that you know no one wants to firmly point a finger uh, and and confirm this because uh, there could have been uh, let's call them intermediaries uh, or contractors in between. But I guess the well, I mean, we should suppose or many are supposing that mm-hmm. uh, all roads lead to 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 Moscow. What do you th- what's your take, Ben? 
It's a tough one because obviously I can't verify, I can't dive that deep. Um, it looks in a way like a playbook Russian false flag operation because in the first instance you wonder who actually benefits from such an act. Mm. It may be the Americans because now Russian gas through Nord Stream is off the table. Um, it may be the Ukrainians because, again, Russian gas is off the table now um, in that region. But then you think twice as in would they do it? How could they do it? Um, what's the actual interest? And then you end up in Moscow quite quickly because they have the capabilities to do these kind of things because it's actually quite a major operation. Um, if you think about the kind of submarine and so on that you you may need for that. Um, and I assume the Danish newspapers are, are covering the technical aspects mm -hmm. of it as well. I'm not too aware. Um, and obviously this is Russian energy weapon, which they have to use now because half a year from now in spring, um, the weapon is no weapon anymore. Um, hence, you end up in Moscow quite quickly, and there's intricate ways in Moscow of who could do that, whether it's contractors, whether it's people who interpret Vladimir Putin's will and then act accordingly, whether it was him giving um, the, the very order to some of their many intelligence agencies and so on. So you really wonder, but you quickly end up in Moscow. Mm. I, I guess um, probably another story which is uh, starting to make news and, and probably dominating uh, more, more page space at the Ulands Post, and of course, uh, is uh, elections, uh, parliamentary elections, uh, of course, on, on the horizon and what that means. I guess uh, maybe for our listeners, uh, you know, we, we see, of course, off the back of, of this uh, you know, potential sabotage with, with Nord Stream, how much is defense uh front and center now as a discussion because of course we've seen most nato nations and of and of course uh denmark has been of, of course a, a very serious player also overseas uh in, in terms of, of nato operations elsewhere you're now also um i believe uh certainly on the west coast of the country it's now become quite a big staging post for a lot of uh u.s and, and international ships coming with supplies of course heading heading eastbound uh, so how much is the, is the geopolitical sphere going to dominate uh, where people are thinking in terms of, uh, of course, what's happening in Parliament? I think it's 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 a it's going to be a very big theme in the elections coming up, um, and and it can also be somewhat of a game changer for the for the government because uh, having this uh, sabotage um, event happening just so close to Denmark, it brings uh, the war even closer. So it was already a big theme. Um, the the budget uh, on defense was was uh, was something we were going to to be discussing anyway in in these elections, but um, but I think this makes it um, it makes it come come closer in a way that um, we will also see people react. So we have uh, as many other countries uh, inflation going up and um, um, like we are people are um, lowering the temperature in every. Uh, public uh, building to um, not not to have too big expenses for for the for heating up and you know all those things that we would never have expected um, to um, to to have to do uh, just half a year ago is now really coming very close and, and becoming very concrete for people and in that um, situation I think um, the prime minister Mette Frederiksen um, the social democrat who is um, who's also leading the polls. Uh, she has um, regained a position of being uh, the manager of the crisis uh, and the, mm. the one who can gather the people in this um, in this uh, yeah warlike situation. So during Corona, we saw a lot of people um, seeking uh, her, and I think it's maybe the same thing can happen. Uh, 
now because she's um, yeah she's in front of all this. She went to Downing Street yesterday, and you know she's she's handling this crisis uh, as the as the state leader, um, mm. and that's a really strong position. So I think actually they are also well, of course they are not happy that this happened, but um, in a in a tactic um, way, it can be it can be a good thing for them. Finally, speaking of crises, uh, we should uh, probably also focus on on the palace. I think everyone was quite surprised, of course, off off the back uh, of uh, the the funeral um, of, of 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 Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, mm-hmm. Now suddenly we have a a bit of a yeah, it's it's a surprising palace crisis uh, in in Denmark, yeah. uh, and of course now you have uh, yeah, well the the, the title uh, certainly of um, the longest reigning uh, leader now um, uh, as well uh, with uh, with your queen, uh, mm-hmm. and and uh, and of course this announcement that um, some members of the royal family will be losing their titles. What what is behind this? Did this also catch your newsroom uh, on the back yes. foot as well? Yes. Was this a complete surprise, or did, yeah, or did even the Danish been- tabloids see it coming yeah it has been breaking news all over uh, every danish media and it's really um talk of town and um among among danish uh, people because normally our monarchy is this fairy tale uh, hans christian anderson like um thing that we that we all connect to and we you know they're so some they're so lovable somehow um but now the queen decided that their half of her grandchildren are no longer to be princes and princesses and that's you know she did that um to sort of make uh, the royal family smaller because she know that they're not they're not going to to become kings and queens anyway so it had to be done at some point but um the problem is that she didn't uh, talk to her son about it so uh, really the big story is that her own son uh, Prince Joachim has been uh, out public stating that uh, he doesn't understand it and that she has been hurting uh, his children and um, and so on. And that's really uh, not something that we see uh, normally in Denmark, that, that the royal family are discussing um, and having this open com- conflict uh, in media and everywhere. Normally it's very quiet and um, yeah, and, and, and something that would be... Um, yeah, that's that everybody can agree on. You have we have the good uh, fortune today that our unofficial royal correspondent uh, is is also here. Juliet uh, is is always uh, very keen on a royal story. Uh, you also mm-hmm. had it on your story list uh, this morning. Juliet, a, a question uh, for uh, for Margarete at Julian's Posten. Is it too simplistic, Margarete, to be drawing a lot of parallels between the Prince Harry situation and the Prince Joachim situation? Uh, yes, no, to what extent, what are the differences? What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think there has been as many scandals uh, surrounding the Danish royal family. Um, so uh, Prince Joachim, he got divorced. Um, but um, besides that, uh, it has been, you know, it, has, it, it hasn't been really something um, um, conflicting. I'm wondering how much. Do you know what I mean? Sorry. Yeah. So because normally, like Danish people are not really um, like people are actually quite Republican uh, in hearts, but because um, because they're because the royal family uh, can gather so much sympathy, and not many people ask uh, or uh, not many people are questioning if we should have a royal family. But this is uh, this is the type of debate that can really. May make people maybe doubt 
um, if it's worth the money and uh, why they have to have these uh, special privileges. Because in Denmark, they are, they mostly have uh, the role of um, like being role models and like being something that can gather the nation, uh, a very symbolic position. And that's the position that they are, um, um, yeah, that they, that they might lose uh, in in a case like this. Well, uh, one to one to follow uh, as well. We'll certainly be keeping uh, the, the the various uh, red tops and uh, and certainly royal obsessed mm-hmm. weeklies uh, across uh, Europe uh, quite uh, busy. Um, we're going to leave it uh, there. Merkel Gjertsen, uh, the editor in chief of Jullens Posten, uh, joining us from uh, Jutland this morning. Uh, it is just just gone at ten forty seven here in Zurich. We're going away for a very short break. When we come back, uh, we'll be talking all things related to Brazil's elections. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has been a leading travel destination for so long that it's easy to assume it's a known quantity. Yet it's a country that has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise, a place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. Wherever you find yourself in Spain, you won't be far from an expression of the country's deep commitment to its culture, and it's never been easier to soak up its music, art, literature and traditions. In Spain, art is present at every turn and culture is taken seriously. Museums, galleries and cinemas are cherished parts of almost every town and city. Great sculptures prowl the streets and stand watch over the beaches. Vast museums house priceless works by Goya, Velázquez and El Greco. Alongside giants like Picasso, Nero and Dali, new artists are nurtured in galleries that serve their cities with cutting-edge contemporary art. And then there's the music. There's far more to Spain than castanets and flamenco. Spaniards know how to throw a party. Some of them last all summer. With a festival for almost any taste, just book your tickets and get stuck in. Everything you're dreaming of this weekend in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain. Spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. And you're back with Monocle uh, on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule, uh, Juliette Linley's here, also Ben Oetzog uh, as well. As we said, just going into the break, uh, Brazil is, of course, heading to the polls today. And uh, regular listeners and readers will know that our very own Fernando Augusto Pacheco has been uh, in Brazil for, I don't know how long, uh, but it feels like a very, very long time. But he just touched down in London uh, this morning. Fernando, bom dia. Bom dia, Tyler. Yes, I did. I arrived home. 30 minutes ago, and after talking to you, actually, I'm going to vote uh, in a college in Hammersmith. They had to change. Usually, I vote to the embassy, but I think it was becoming too small. We have a big community uh, of Brazilians here in London, and it's going to be a, a tough one. There's some uh, a little bit tension in the air, Tyler, because as you know, Jair Bolsonaro, some people are saying that he might question the result. I think he will likely lose the election. Not sure if in the first or the second round, but if I could feel being in Brazil for the month of September, uh, that there was some sort of tension in the air. Some people were not even declaring their vote. I never saw something like that in a Brazilian election. 
So, Fernando, maybe, well, let's, I guess on, on the, the one point about uh, Bolsonaro contesting whatever whatever the result may be, we've been hearing about this for months. Uh, it's almost, the, this has almost been a topic uh, since uh, this was uh, announced and we knew what polling day was, was going, going going to be. Uh, but maybe just take us back to, to being in, in Sao Paulo, uh, the, the mood um, and maybe sort of the hopes for the nation um, out of this, because I guess on one side, we know that there has been, yeah, on, on one side, you could say there's been brand damage done, um, but yes. also there's maybe this notion of, of, of what has sort of surrounded Brazil, that there was a Brazil moment. Uh, you were maybe very much part of it. Uh, there was a time when we, we spent a lot of time, you know, in Rio, in Sao Paulo, in Belo Horizonte, etc. And and those kind of years are are gone. Um, so the, the sort of the Brazilian soft power machine is not what it was a decade plus ago. Um, is is that sort of maybe I would say sort of you know part of the the dreams and wishes that we also see a a reset for brand Brazil? Absolutely, I think brand Brazil lived a very dark time in the last four uh, years. I have to say, Tyler, and 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 it's interesting as well. I mean, I could hear the show you were talking about Ukraine. I was listening. I was in Rio for the final TV debate between the candidates. It was quite shocking to me that there was no mention of the war in Ukraine, no mention about the relationship of Brazil and the United States. So it's quite sad. Brazil feels quite isolated at the global stage, which is a shame uh, for the size of our country. So even though you know Lula is the favorite, I have a feeling that he will win. We're not sure yet if it's in the first round or the second round. And, and I have to say, Tyler, I wouldn't say that the country is shifting to the left. Basically, people are rejecting Bolsonaro. And Lula is showing, even with his choice of vice president, Geraldo Alckmin, uh, a centrist, center-right kind of guy, a former rival of Lula. So basically, Lula is saying, listen, I'm a candidate of the center. I'm a rejection of everything that Bolsonaro uh, represents. And I can understand. So people are voting for Lula not because... They are in love with his policies, uh, but more of a rejection of that extreme populism uh, that Bolsonaro live. And as you said, uh, such a damage to brand Brazil. I mean, we used to have this image of a, you know, a happy country, a little bit sexy with good design here and there. We always had problems, uh, but this image has been severely damaged. I mean, look uh, at the attitude of Bolsonaro and the environment, uh, and even his his card when he was elected in 2018. He said it would be great for the economy. I mean, not really. We haven't grown uh, quite a lot in the last four years, I have to say. Fernando, you just mentioned that, uh, that of course, uh, on this, this last round debate in, in Rio, that even you know, Ukraine didn't come up as a topic. And, and, and you know, even Andrew was saying it's, it's curious sometimes uh, that you know, you know, the further away you move from East Europe, um, things you just don't have that, that notion of proximity. What about other topics which, of course, dominate the news, uh, maybe more in the Northern Hemisphere, topics which, uh, of course, uh, are, are, are very close, top of news headlines when we think about energy, for example, what is, I, if I think about sort of three topics beside, you know, maybe the reinstatement or, or the, uh, the reflourishment uh, of, of brand of brand Brazil, what, what else are our key topics for voters? Well, I think the key topic there was cost of living, perhaps not so much energy, Tyler, but food is a big issue in Brazil. Uh, and the cost of food has rose incredibly. I was there, I could see I went to supermarkets. I think that was the main topic that all candidates kind of agreed. Surprisingly, the environment and our attitudes towards uh, the Amazon and deforestation came up 
quite a lot. And there are a lot of big differences uh, between Lula and Bolsonaro uh, with that topic. But another thing that came out, it was not the prettiest debate uh, when you looked at it. There were so many insults. I think it's been kind of uh, the ugliest debate uh, I've ever seen. And, and the problem in Brazil, Tyler, because of the electoral law, uh, they have to invite even minor candidates that are polling like zero to one percent. So they kind of distract. We kind of want to see a debate between Bolsonaro and Lula, but that's that that kind of almost have been avoided uh, in a way. But I, I blame the electoral law. We can't blame Global for that. No, and indeed, I want to bring uh, Emma Nelson in because you'll probably be spending quite a bit of time uh, with uh, with Emma uh, tomorrow morning. Course, <laughs> yes, I was going to say. So you'll be up uh, bright and early. Uh, you'll have to sort of readjust your your clock. Uh, Emma, you'll have yes. to be gentle with him uh, as as well. Uh, because, but it'll be interesting to sort of see where we get in this first round and what happens uh, and where things land um, on on the second. Emma, I'm going to hand over to you right now uh, because sometimes the uh, flight schedules don't always uh, agree with this program. But I have to make my way. To to uh, to uh, to the airport to, to get to Marseille to get to Paris to get to Dakar uh, and uh, I will uh, be of course updating you from from the road. Enjoy your travels, Tyler. Safe travels and happy destination when you get to it. Um, thank you very much indeed. Uh, Faye, should we keep with you? We will be on the Globalist tomorrow morning, won't we? Um, talking about you know, the, the fact is that the, the rest of the world is looking at this, um, not just in terms of uh, brand Brazil, but the rest of Latin America as well, because that lurching away from the far right towards the left, that always has ripples across the whole continent, doesn't it? Well, absolutely. And if Lula wins, I have a feeling, Emma, that uh, Brazil will have more friends. As you know, uh, more recently in, a, in, the, in the continent, a lot of left-wing governments have been elected. Uh, Chile, Colombia, of course, we have a left-wing president in Argentina. And Lula has a better relationship as well with Europe. Uh, so I think Brazil will be part of the global stage again. And that makes me quite happy. But again, we don't know the results. And one thing I tell you, tomorrow morning, one thing that we do very well in Brazil, efficient elections. We will know the result when we speak live uh, tomorrow morning, for sure. Thank you very much indeed, Faye. I'll uh, I'll leave you to go and uh, readjust your body clock. Uh, it's just coming up to 9.56 here in, in the UK, uh, Faye, if you need to set your watch again. But um, <laughs> Benno and, and Juliet, just listening to that, I mean, how welcome a return would it be to have a sympathetic Brazil? <laughs> That would be quite nice indeed, because it's been a while, hasn't it? And even before under Lula, of course, which may have been sympathetic, if you will, all these corruption scandals and so on coming up, um, really damaged, well, to, to quote Fernando there, um, brand Brazil. So maybe there's a bit of a change. Tomorrow we'll know more. I'm actually surprised that this is so quick. And staying with you, Benno, the, the, the idea of, does anyone here remember BRICS, Brazil, Russia, India, China, I can't remember what the S was, S was S, South Africa, wasn't it? I mean, when you look at that and the way that the world is sitting right now, you just think, goodness me, that was a, that was a list that was compiled for perhaps many of the wrong reasons. BRICS was a terrible club, wasn't it? <laughs> and it certainly was never homogenous in any way. But I would still argue that it, was, it is indicative of how international relations and world politics have changed, as in there are more independent players, and Brazil is one of them, and India is obviously another one, that take a bit of a, I don't know, middle position on many issues. They focus on their own interests, they don't easily align with anyone else, which obviously goes against the spirit of BRICS, which was supposed to be an alignment. It was a real, um, They even built, um, an, I think, a development bank, the BRICS bank, haven't heard 
about that in a long time. So that's long, long gone, but it's still indicative of the likes of Brazil and India and others to vote independently, to focus on their own interests, to annoy the West in doing that. For example, when Brazil abstains when it comes to condemning Russian actions and so on. So there's still a tiny bit of BRICS spirit there, but as a as an actual club that is anyway to be taken seriously as a different pole, maybe even world affairs. That's long gone. Ben Ozog, Juliet Lindley, Tyler Brulé, Andrew Tuck, thank you so much for joining us today. Our thanks also to Mark and Yetson and Fernanda Agusta Pacheco. Uh, our producers are Desiree, Desiree Bandley, our studio manager in Zurich. Zurich was Desi as well. In London, we were joined behind the controls by Sarah Nicole and Nora Hole. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Sunday returns next week with Tyler behind the microphone again. So from all of us, goodbye and enjoy the rest of your weekend. <laughs>